If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 14. I'd love for you to follow around. I think most of the, along, most of the passages will be on the screen behind me. We're going to be in John chapter 14. and read a couple sections there and then flip over to John 16. The reason that we're reading these sections of Scripture is because we are marching article by article through a confessional statement, the Gospel Coalition con- Confession, that we are proposing the church adopt as our statement of faith. We're doing this because we don't want our statement of faith to be a dusty document in a drawer somewhere that never gets used. We really believe that everything that we think, everything that we do, every place that we go should be informed by the truth of who, who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. And so this attempt, this statement, we believe is a good one. We think that it more fully captures where we are and who we are as a church. This is Article 9 that we're looking at this morning. You're going to see from the section in John chapter 14 and 16 that it's about the Holy Spirit. This is a, a comment on the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend some time thinking about the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to begin reading in John chapter 14, verse 15 is where we'll start. So John 14, 15 is where we're going to start. These are the words of Jesus, and so I want to remind you that as we're thinking about the Holy Spirit, there's a ton of different definitions. Many of you come from a million different backgrounds. You would have varying degrees of experience, comfortability with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to look at the words of Jesus, what he promised and who he said the Spirit is. This is the 15th verse of John chapter 14, and we'll jump around just a little bit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Let's skip down to verse 25, the same same chapter. This is Jesus giving instruction. Just before the Passover meal, just around that time. John 14, 25. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I want you to flip one page to the right, John 16. Jesus continues. More instruction, more direction, starting in verse 5 of John chapter 16. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it 
to you. Let me take a moment and pray. Father, we don't want to rush over your word. We don't want to take for granted that you've spoken, that you are a, you are a revealing God. Glorious in the fact that you've wanted to be known. And not only have you wanted to be known in all creation, made evident by the, the powerful, wonderful, majestic things that you've made, but you desired to be known in the person of Jesus Christ who was foretold by a law that also proclaimed who you are, prophets who spoke of the Messiah to come, and then Jesus, who was the perfect imprint of your nature. God, thank you. You've taken so many pains to be known, to be seen. And now, God, we delight. We delight this morning to think of the fact that you've taken the steps so far as to dwell with us. You've sent your spirit to be here and now, empowering, enlightening, giving us an assurance that Jesus is for us. Thank you. God, we don't want to rush past these truths. It is an amazing fact. I pray you'd give us light now. Help us in the midst of a confusing topic, maybe one that's been neglected in thought. I pray, God, that you'd help us. Give me words. We want to hear from you. And God, we're bold enough to ask. We pray that you'd send your spirit. God, give light. Lead us into all truth like Jesus promised. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, I want to read for you the article from the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. Before we do that, I just want to mention where we're going in the sermon. I want to spend a little bit of time telling you where this is coming in John chapter 14, 15, 16. I want to orient ourselves a little bit. For some of us, we're more familiar with the Bible. The moment I said, turn your Bibles to John 14, you remember the coffee stain, where it's at on the part of the page, what you circled with your pen when your grandma told you about it. I mean, you're just comfortable, you know. The rest of you, maybe I said, let's turn to John 14, and you think, is that the second John or the third one, or which one was that? Where is it? So I want to orient you to where we're at. After we read the confessional statement and orient in Scripture, I want to give you three biographical notes of the Holy Spirit. So just three notes. Three notes of biography, who is, if you're thinking about what that section might be about, we're just thinking about the person of the Holy Spirit, who he is. And then I want to look at, from the article, three things that he does, the work of the Holy Spirit. So, it's going to be three biographical notes, and then we're going to take a look at a couple of things. Of course, it's in three, but three things that he does. Let's look on the screens up here behind me. This is the time when normally they would be in this uh, worship guide in the back uh, that won't help you today, even if you had one. So you could look on the screen behind you. I want to encourage you as well to interact with the very words of this confessional statement. There is going to be a, a website coming up soon that will have all of the sermons from the summer series on it, as well as the statement with annotated stuff from Scripture. So you can see a bibliography of where everything is taken from the best we can, we can discern anyway. And so this is Article 9 on the power of the Holy Spirit from the confessional statement. We believe that this salvation, so this salvation, meaning Article 6, 7, 8, we've spent three weeks talking about the gospel. Brian talked about justification by faith last week. That salvation, the one that we get through Jesus, that this salvation attested in all scripture and secured by Jesus Christ is applied to his people by the Holy Spirit. Sent by the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ 
And as the other paraclete is present with and in believers, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and by his powerful and mysterious work, regenerates spiritually dead sinners, awakening them to repentance and faith. And in him, they are baptized into union with the Lord Jesus, such that they are justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. By the Spirit's agency, believers are renewed, sanctified, and adopted into God's family. They participate in the divine nature and receive his sovereignly distributed gifts. The Holy Spirit is himself the down payment of the promised inheritance. And in this age, indwells, guides, instructs, equips, revives, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. That's a massive statement. There's a lot there. It would take a while for you to sort of comb through it. Uh, If you see it later on and there's some scriptures alongside it, it would be a good thing for us to go through and sort of pick through it. The reason this is a significant Sunday, this particular article, the reason I'm grateful it's in here is because I think, at least in my experience, the particular tradition of faith that I've walked through has neglected, in many ways neglected, a study of or consideration of the Holy Spirit. I think that's as honest as I could possibly say it. I would say that in a lot of ways, when I grew up, our church had an understanding of the Holy Spirit that was sort of like, we kind of get what he does. I'm grateful that he came way back then when I confessed my sins that one time. I think he's around somewhere. But for the most part, we worshiped and lived under Father, Son, and Holy Bible. That's just the way that we lived church. The Holy Spirit seemed uncontrollable. He seemed mysterious. He seemed wacky. And, of course, we had seen abuses outside in the rest of the, of the, the church. And so what happens in this particular topic of the Holy Spirit is some of us grew up in a stodgy environment where the Holy Spirit was like, this one time I clapped to how great thou art. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> like, I'm telling you, some moving in there. And then there's other churches who it seems like in order to control maybe and abuse and to seek after an emotional experience, make the Holy Spirit the center of every single thing that happens. So you cannot eat a piece of toast in the morning without saying the Spirit anointed my butter. It was amazing. Everything is a work of the Spirit. You may have had experiences where you think I'm afraid of this sort of thing. It could be that you went to a church service and someone said, yes, it's the Holy Spirit that is on me right now and as evidence of that, I will bark like a dog. That's an actual experience that I had in a church service. And I remember at a time being terrified, just terrified. Like, listen, I, I, I know that the Holy Spirit's important. When someone gets baptized, he's in there. But I'm kind of, kind of leave him alone. And I would say to you, I would challenge you that we need to press beyond those kinds of fears, those kinds of caveats. In fact, I think that most of the good application and instruction on the Holy Spirit that I've heard in my entire life has basically been a defense of why we don't want more of the Holy Spirit. Entire teachings based on it's not this, it's not that. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit is not, okay? And eventually, eventually, I believe that God wants for us a desire for the positive filling, assuring, powerful experience of the Spirit, not to be afraid. There's a sense in which someone might say it's a mystery, yes. But it's not the kind of mystery that is completely void of meaning and it's unknown 
a mystery of craziness that we can't understand. The Spirit is a kind of mystery that has so much depth and layers of meaning that we'll never get to the bottom of it. It's a kind of mystery that should invite us in. That's what we're looking at when we read about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. So, I want to dive in. I want to make the best attempt we possibly can to not grieve the Spirit, to not quench the Spirit of God. And we do that, I think, by considering, by honoring, by taking time to think. One of the ways that we honor people in our world is people write biographies about them. I just started a biography on George Washington. It's amazing how what great effort it has been taken up to understand someone, just to understand and think about who they are. This book begins with George Washington's great-grandfather in England. And all of this time honoring the life of and thinking through his life to get to know him. So I want to take just a little bit of a short period of time. We don't have a long time. We're not going to write a work like Washington's work. But I want to give three notes on who the Holy Spirit is. I think if there's one thing that I would say about this confessional statement article is it's a little bit weak on who the Holy Spirit is. Here's the first thing we must completely confess and understand. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit has a personhood. Now, this is probably one of those things that you never really thought about, but it's very easy to fall into a trap of believing that the Holy Spirit is just some sort of force, some kind of impersonal thing out there, something that Yoda would master, something that would, that would make the ship go into hyperdrive or something like that. I wanted to be very careful not to cross the streams of Trek and Wars, right? Because that's the ultimate no-no in nerddom. You do not do that. But this idea comes on us, sort of, that the Holy Spirit is just kind of this weird, like, force that someone might control as a tool. But that's not the way the Bible describes the person of the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over and over again, yes, the word for spirit, pneuma in the New Testament, has a kind of neutered understanding. So there's some people say, well, it's kind of male-ish and female-ish. We cannot stutter or not, we can't miss the fact that Jesus says he over and over and over and over again. The spirit is a he. And it's possible, I think, for us to miss it if we begin to talk about the Holy Spirit in terms of it. Some of you have had, had babies recently. So beautiful, wonderful new babies. In fact, I think sometime over the course of a two-month period in the spring, we had like 11 new babies born in the nursery. It's exploding back there. And so imagine if someone came and met your child and said, it is so beautiful. It is just amazing. That thing, I mean, it cries like crazy. It, it is something else. You know, depending on your personality and your disposition, you might kind of let it go by as cute, and that'd be fine. And then they came back the next week, right? The next week and said, hey, how's it going? And they realize they're talking to your child. Oh, I love its outfit. Its outfit is amazing. Eventually, you would say to them, this is no longer cute. Like, do you, do you not understand the personhood of my child? This is a girl, right? And why do you have it in blue? But it's a girl, right? I know it's hard. Some of you made that mistake. But this is a girl. Like, actually interact with the person. There's a pronoun given to person. And Jesus does that, gives honor to the Holy Spirit. Doesn't just say, when the comforter comes, it will be amazing. It will lead you into all truth. I think this beckons to us and asks us for a particular kind of mindset when we engage the Holy Spirit. Relationship. 
relationship is not only possible, but it is the essence of our understanding and our interaction with the Holy Spirit. The The Holy Spirit is a person. We need to start right there. Start with the way that we interact with, speak of, ask God to send. The Holy Spirit is a person, not just a Jedi mind trick or something. Second, I want to say that the Holy Spirit was not born in AD 33. Is anybody tracking me? The Holy Spirit was not born in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. It was not as though Jesus left, he accomplished some things, and then God said, now what do we do? And decided to make up this tool or this force and send the Holy Spirit. I know that it's tempting to think that. We just preached all the way through Acts, and there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit interacts with people in a unique way following the ascension of Jesus Christ. Pentecost marked something significant. It's why Jesus said, if you even note at the beginning there in John chapter 14, he says in John chapter 14, at the end of verse 17, you know him. So Pentecost has not yet come. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit in the present. He says, you know him, for he dwells with you. But then note, there's going to be a change. He dwells with you now, and he will be in you. The difference between with and in is what happened at Pentecost, not just some sort of outside force, but a personal being that dwells with and in people is what happened at Pentecost. That's the change. But it doesn't mean that he was born then. Every single instance of God working in the face of humanity or in the world or in all creation, the spirit has been present and active. The triune God does all things unified and perfectly together. If I had to ask you, man, first surveys, now pop quizzes, what is happening in this place? If I had to ask you, where does the Holy Spirit first show up in the Bible? How far do we have to get? Genesis 1, page 1, barely a few verses. And yet many people, I think, think about the Holy Spirit as though, man, he didn't really show up till later. Yeah, he probably was born, I don't know when he... In the beginning was God. The earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The powerful, active presence of God in the form of His Spirit from the very beginning. Most scholars believe there's between 80 and 100 references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament alone. Between 80 and 100 direct references to the work, the power, the control, the influence of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that anoints kings to rule and rests upon and can leave. The Holy Spirit is the one that opens the mouths of prophets to speak forth mysteries and oracles and prophecies concerning Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers Samson to pull apart live animals limb from limb. It's the same Spirit. The exact same spirit, between 80 and 100 times directly referenced in the Old Testament. Another interesting fact about the person of the Holy Spirit. Not only is he a person, it's not a it, it's a he. Not only did he not was he not born at Pentecost, he's been eternal, he's an eternal being, but also, very importantly, the Holy Spirit is God. Now, I know that we're going to vote on this confessional statement, and uh, it's not probably good to sort of like nitpick at it. We've tried to avoid those kind of things, but like, surprise, I have opinions about it. I think the one area that I wish it was more explicit in this particular statement 
is that it would explicitly state that the Holy Spirit is God. When combined with Article 1, which mentions the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then, of course, the power that's mentioned here, we see that the Holy Spirit is God. It's implicit, it's there, but I wish it was more explicitly stated. So I just want to say it clearly. The Spirit of God is not a tool of God. It is not just the power of God. The Holy Spirit is God himself. And must be worshipped as such, must be invited as such. He brings the same He brings the exact same level of care and love and connection that the Father would. The Holy Spirit is God. This is really important. At different points in Scripture, if the Holy Spirit is not God, you'll get very confused. Because at one point you'll read in the Bible and it'll say that Jesus did something. And then you'll read a little bit later and it'll say that exact same thing and referencing it'll say the Spirit of God did this thing. One instance, another one of this instance like this, in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is full of allusions to the Old Testament. Some of us, the Old Testament's harder to read, and so we don't go there. We have a little bit of chronological snobbery as well. We think like Old Testament. Well, I've seen the new one. It's improved, right? It's like when we bought a coffee pot this summer. It was like we researched and researched and researched, and we had to get this, the, old, the second newest model. I immediately felt cheated. It's like, I'm like, well, now I can't drink this coffee. Yeah, the new, there's a new one out. We, have, we live in a world of everything needs to be new. And so I think sometimes when we think New Testament old, it's like, why would you go there? I think it's better to think of first and second. These are connected. There's, no, there's a, a continuity between them. You could not tell Jesus himself or a New Testament writer. They would not understand any sort of the problems we have with someone saying like, oh, you know, I mean, the New Testament's really more my jam. You know what I mean? Some of the prophets are cool, that's a little, but they're a little weird, and like, so it's more. You do not understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old as well. And so Hebrews dives in and quotes the Old Testament like crazy. One of the interesting things that it does in Hebrews chapter 10, it quotes Jeremiah. Everybody's clear? Jeremiah, it's a big book in the Old Testament. He's a prophet of God who would often stand before the people. He was not listened to very well, but he would stand before the people, bring prophecies of woe, and he would say, thus says the Lord. Now, every single person would have thought to themselves, well, the Lord, I am, Jehovah, Yahweh, Adonai, this is, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet Hebrews does something very interesting. It says, just before quoting Jeremiah, the Holy Spirit says to us, where God acts He acts in the person of the Son, in the person of the Spirit, in the person of the Father. There's no disunity in these things. Jesus had a unique ministry by becoming incarnate and living in the flesh. But where God's activity is active, it's not bifurcated into different parts. So, the Holy Spirit is God. Not an it, it's a he. Was not born in AD 33. It's eternal. And the Holy Spirit is God. We need to deal with that fact. And I think that gives us a good amount of biography. Let me move on to mostly what the Spirit of God does. This is what this article really focuses on, what the Spirit of God does. If I had to give it to you in the most simple terms possible, I would say that the Holy Spirit, I think the Holy Spirit is a mediator. The Holy Spirit takes what Jesus has done and then brings it to us. He mediates the work of Jesus to our own souls. This is how J.I. Packer mentions what the Holy Spirit does. He says, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry, 
at this or any time in the Christian era is to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. A better way and a simpler way, this is the first word of what the work of the Holy Spirit is, is application. He applies the work of Jesus to us. He applies the work of Jesus to us. Do you know that it could have been extremely possible for Jesus to come, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life, to die a crucified sinner's death, to be raised from the dead over over death in the grave, to ascend to heaven and then turn around and to say to everyone, see, I can do it. See? See how it's done? You see how it's done? Do that. We've made this point over the last few weeks. There's a reason that what Jesus has done is often offered and given to us. And the work of the Spirit is to do that, to take what Jesus has done and to apply it to our account. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you have no interest or benefit of what Jesus has done. He's a nice example. He's a curious character in history. You might even believe that he was the Son of God and took on the weight of the whole world. But until his forgiveness is applied to you by the Holy Spirit, it means nothing for you. I tried to think of an illustration. This one might not be great, but... I'll go for it anyway. Uh, We spent a week on St. George Island a little bit ago. Someone in the church was really gracious to let us uh, as a family go and stay there. And it was a a wonderful time. It was beautifully refreshing. And a couple of the days were just really stinky hot. You know what I mean? Like hot like only Florida can, can be. And in Florida, I don't know if you knew this, but if you stay out in the sun, you can get a thing called a sunburn. Have you heard this before? I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Like, I can actually sort of get a tan. I'm not like a person who's like insta-bake, uh, an insta-bake oven. It's not quite like that. Uh, but still, I sort of have to be careful. I'm Norwegian, and so that, uh, that's not normal for me to be in the sun like this. I want you to imagine and think about the fact that if I one day just said to Sarah, hey, you and the kids just stay back at the house. It's the heat of the sun. I want to enjoy this day. I want everything the beach can throw at me. Let me take this lounge chair thing and I'm just going to go down and lay out like just a sun god, right? I went down there and laid in the sun for five hours. It would be a very, 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 very sad scene except for the power of sunscreen, right? Sunscreen's amazing. I don't know if you guys knew this. Somehow we've designed this lotion that has like sun-fighting properties. It actually takes UV rays and kills them and just pushes them away. It, it does a dikembe matumbo on the UV rays. God has, through scientists created a way for us to safely be in the sun and minimize our chances for skin cancer and terrible itchy sunburns. Did you know that? Now imagine if to my chagrin I walked back up after five hours of laying in the sun and I was burnt to a crisp. I said, I don't know what happened. I believe in sunscreen. It was right there by me the whole time. I've seen other people. They've been in the sun. They talk about sunscreen. It has properties that repel the UV rays. It can put them to death. I do not know what happened. You know where I'm going with this, right? How far do we have to string this out? Do we have to keep going? The point is I never applied, right? The sunscreen is in the bottle. I'm in the sun. I never applied it to my life. I never applied it to my life, to, to me, right? I never applied it to me. That is how important the work of the Holy Spirit is. 
You cannot live the Christian life apart from the application of the Holy Spirit. Period. You will fry. You will burn out. You will die. Jesus is of no value to you unless his benefits, his work have been applied to you in your life. That is how important the work of the application of the Holy Spirit is. That's why the article starts that way. This salvation is applied to his people by the Holy Spirit. How does he do this? How does he apply it? Well, he applies it by convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He regenerates spiritually dead people. You are dead in your sins and something about the power of the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you alive. This this is the work, applying what Jesus has done. It's not a minor side note, not a crazy uncle in Christianity. The Holy Spirit is vital. You can do nothing apart from him. So he applies. I think if you had to give an illustration overall, if you had to say a word, what does the Holy Spirit do? Oh yeah, he takes from Jesus and gives to me. He takes from the Father and gives to me. He applies what is mine in Jesus Christ. He applies it to my soul. If you learn nothing else about the Holy Spirit, I think that's a good place to start. Do you want more of Jesus? Do you want to find the forgiveness that he earned for you? Do you want to experience the fellowship of his sufferings, the hope of the resurrection? If you want something from Jesus, this is what he's saying to them, if you want something from Jesus, the Holy Spirit is who will give it to you. You can never work around the Holy Spirit to get to Jesus. It's impossible. That's just the way things are. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does, it's, t- it's partly related to who he is, but it's mostly what he does. It's one of the reasons that twice in John chapter 14, Jesus calls him the helper, parakletos. He's a comforter. He comes alongside. One of the things that he does innately in his nature is he comes alongside and then eventually comes to dwell in Christians. Not only application, but presence. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God. In every single instance, Old Testament and New, where God has been present with his people It has been by the mediation of the Holy Spirit. Of course, save the unique incarnation of Jesus Christ for those 33 years. Where God is present, he comes by his spirit. That's what we learn. The statement, article in the statement says, sent by the Father and the Son. I want to make a little bit of an aside. Sent by the Father and the Son. That's not a small statement. That small addition, that, that, uh, what's the word called? That's and a conjunction. Is that a conjunction? (laughs) <laughs> you guys are very honest. You know what I would have done? I would have had no clue. But if someone would have said, I would have been like, yep, yep, for sure. I remember that from third grade. That and, sent by the Father and the Son, actually at one particular point became the issue that split the church east and west. Around the year 1000, this great schism that took place in the church, east and west, the reason we have Eastern Orthodox Christianity, was over, was called filioqua, the The dual sending of the Spirit. Does the Father only send the Spirit or does the Son send the Spirit as well? And so this statement landed on by the church in the West and put into, put basically into the Nicene Creed, sent by the Father and the Son, is a big deal. The fact that he comes, that's what it means. He's sent. He comes to be with us. He's present with and in believers. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of the promised inheritance. He comes and dwells and stamps us in a way. The presence of the Holy Spirit day after day after day after day is a promise and a reminder that God will not fail you. 
We just sang the song. And in the night when all our hope is lost, you are the one who won't give up on us. The presence of God that reminds you and assures you of that is his Holy Spirit. His very, very presence. I want to make one comment about this that is probably the most preposterous section of John. I know I skipped over what we were going to do to to sort of couch the scripture where you're at. Basically, the book of John, starting in chapter 13, is a slow march to the cross. So, there is 12 chapters that intro who he is. The rest of the book is basically just describing the passion of Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection, his appearing to the disciples, and up to 500. Starting in chapter 13, Jesus really flips the script on his disciples. I want you to imagine the mood that they're in. These disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. You remember this? They left everything. Their families, their businesses. He came and he said, follow me. And they've done so through trial, through pain, through suffering, because they've become, they are convinced that he is the son of God. This was not an easy journey. They're not racking up Hilton points on this time away with Jesus. It's not an excursion for them of fun. In fact, at different times, Jesus is in danger. They're in danger, accused, potentially in harm's way. And Jesus keeps saying these outlandishly amazing statements like, if you do not hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters in comparison to the way you love me, you're not worthy of me. And they've spent three years following him. They've seen miracles. They know what he can do. And yet, right in the middle of all this, you know what he says to them? He gathers them together for a meal. He says, one of you is going to betray me. I'm going to die. I'm going away. I'm leaving. And he has to say to them numerous times, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be sorrow, sorrowful. Why? Because they were sad. This was not a good deal. They felt betrayed, confused. The same way you would if you would have spent years of your life building something with someone. I'm locked in with this company. I'm giving up higher paying jobs. I'm staying. I believe in this vision. Let's do this. And then the whole thing gets sold out from under you completely opposite of what the founding vision of the company was by the greed or the, by the mismanagement of the person that you're following. You might have felt that disillusioned. Like, what? So you're telling me I left my fishing business and my boat and my family and my friends and I followed you for three years so that you can go and die? That's the message he's just given them. He's leaving them. Jesus has saved their lives. They've been on a boat with waves and winds and storms and lightning and thunder and Jesus saved their very lives. And now he's saying, don't worry about it. I'm leaving. It's going to be fine. It's fine. I'm leaving. More than that, more than saying it's fine, I'm leaving, he actually says, it's better that I go. Did you catch that when we read John 14 and John 16? He says to them, it is better that I go. Which is an astounding statement. And I'm sure it would have made the disciples think to themselves, this is preposterous, he's crazy. It would be like if you landed down in the middle of the rainforest today and someone said, you need to survive out here for four years. But don't worry about it. We have three amazing rainforest guides. One dude, you may recognize him. He starred in the TV sitcom MacGyver. He will be with you the entire time. 
He's going to make electric generators out of bamboo sticks. You're also going to have with you someone who speaks every known language in the entire rainforest. Everyone you come across you can trade with because this person can communicate. And then, some other guy. And after 15 days of hiking, meandering, wandering through, almost being bitten by snakes, you've been there. You've been at the moment where the anaconda is just like coming on you and then the guys just go in and chop, chop and they just, they win. They save you over and over and over again. And you say to yourself, you know what, like I, this is crazy, but I think we can do it because we have MacGyver, we have this guy. And, and then one morning they wake up and over fish, they say to you, here's the deal. We're just going to leave. We're just out of here. You got this. In fact, it's better that we leave. You would say you're crazy, you're insane, this can't possibly be true. And my guess is is that for most of you in the Christian life, this is kind of how you feel. Do you know that Jesus is basically saying that if if you replaced any member of our church with himself and we take away the Holy Spirit, we lose? If you replace a physical person in this church, no matter who it is, how gifted, how loving, how caring, how compassionate, with Jesus, in the flesh, he comes back. This is where he comes. And you remove the Holy Spirit, we are at an unestimable loss. I know that's hard to believe. And I think it's painfully obvious that many of us live our lives like this is just simply not true. It's simply not true. There's no way. Do you know that at least in this point in time, What Jesus is saying to us is because he sent the Spirit, the very presence of God, not not tied down to time or place, applying the perfect work of Jesus Christ to our lives, that because the Holy Spirit has come, that we have it better off today than Peter did following Jesus for three years. This is an astounding statement, but that is the only thing we can possibly conclude because it is actually true that God himself dwells with and in you. I think we oftentimes think far too little of the fact that God himself has made us a tent, a dwelling place. He has made you his dwelling place. It's not an aside. It's a massive part of his work. Where the Holy Spirit rests and lives is a big deal. So the Holy Spirit applies Jesus' life to us. He is the very presence of God for us and in us. And then finally, the last thing is he's the power of God for us to do anything of meaningful significance in this life. The fruit of the Spirit, to grow in holiness, to have power for witness and preaching. There's a reason all throughout Acts, it says the Spirit rested on them, they were in prayer, and they preached boldly. To have an assurance so that you're not constantly thinking to yourself, but was I really forgiven? But can I really get over this? Can regrets really be done away with? Can sin really be dealt with? Does God really love me because this week I sinned three more times than last week? For you to not constantly struggle with wondering if you were a son or a daughter, the the Holy Spirit is the power to bring assurance in your soul. Romans tells us that it's the Spirit of God in us that cries out, Abba, Father. Anything in you that has a sweetness, an affection, a heart for God, that desires his glory and his ways and his things over your own, every ounce of that inclination is a gift of the Holy Spirit. You have no power to do that apart from him. It's a reason that John 15, 
is couched right between John 14 and 16. I mean, other than numbers, right? Some of you can, can count. You know that it goes 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And yet when we read, it was like 14 jumped to 16. And I, I said that because honestly, for a long time in my life, I never realized the connection between John 15, this wonderful, I am the true vine, abide with me, you will bear much fruit. I never noticed the connection. I loved John 15 when I was a kid. I loved it. I was a friend, I'm abiding in him, I'm fruit bearing, I'm a plant. It was awesome, right? I never once made the connection that what Jesus is saying is basically, unless I can indwell you, unless I can live in you, unless you have my presence constantly, you can do nothing. That's what he says. This is verse 5 of John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you really believe that? You know why he says that in John 15? John 15 rests on the possibility of us abiding in Jesus Christ, rests on whether or not the Holy Spirit comes. Whether or not the Holy Spirit in 14 and in 16 is actually ours. The power of the Christian life is only possible through God sending himself to dwell in us. Another reason I know that power only comes through this is because Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? You remember Jesus at his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, one of the things that happens, I think we think it's just like a nice little family reunion, like they wanted to pose for a selfie. You know, like Jesus comes up from baptism and he's got the selfie stick ready and he's like, okay, God, open the thing, speak. The dove comes down, remember this? And people point to it, this is the Trinity. It's so much more going on. You know what is happening here is the Spirit of God is resting on Jesus so that he has power to live out the life that he needs to live. Over and over and over again, Jesus was reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit. If you wanted to do like a little index search and just look through the Gospels and think to yourself, what's the connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit? You will see that he does nothing except the Holy Spirit rests on him. Here is a newsflash. You are not better than Jesus. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit desperately, spent time away alone with the Father, praying that the Spirit might come. And let's just be honest, so many of us, we think to ourselves, I kind of got this. Yeah, that's fine. If I'm going to do a mission trip like next spring, I'll probably need the Holy Spirit then. Oh yeah, and then when my neighbor comes over, I'll probably need the, the... The rest of the time, I think I probably got it. Jesus says, you can do nothing. The power of God to live the life that you need comes only through the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with an increasing hunger and desire and desperation to know God more in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I want you to push past all the caveats, all the yeah buts, what abouts, I heard about, how about the gifts, I don't get this, Marat, what, healings, to push back past all of that and in the quietness of your own soul to begin to stir in yourself a longing You are desperate for the Holy Spirit, that you need him, that you want more of Jesus. And in order to get more of him, you need more of the Spirit of God. This is not a new problem. We are not the first Christians to wrestle with neglecting or grieving, maybe even quenching the Spirit of God. Charles Spurgeon had this to say in the opening of a sermon on the Holy Spirit. This is hundreds of years ago. 
The unspeakable gift of the Son of God was followed up by the equally priceless gift of the Holy Spirit. Must it not be confessed by us that we think far less of the Holy Spirit than we should? I'm sure that we do not exalt the Savior too much, nor is he too often the subject of our meditations, but at the same time, we give to the Holy Spirit a very disproportionate place compared with the Redeemer. I fear that we even grieve the Spirit by our neglect of him, Let me invite your devout contemplations to the special work of the Holy Spirit. Such an invitation is necessary. The subject has not grown stale, for it too seldom occupies our thoughts. Let me pray for us that that is not said of us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give us power, power for witness by your Spirit. God, I pray that you would pour out the Holy Spirit so that those who